There we go. All right. Well, I hope that you are ready to dive into 1 Corinthians today. Uh, we took the whole sermon last week to read through the book of 1 Corinthians. It took us almost an hour. I trust that this message will not be as long. In fact, we're really going to focus on just the first few words of the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, of the first letter to the Corinthians. And yet, we are going to use that verse because it introduces the apostle to do a character sketch. We're going to go through the whole book of 1 Corinthians in order that we might understand better who the apostle is, who the apostle Paul is, and what a biblical apostle is. Um, I think this is very, very important for us in this day and age because there are many people who are um, claiming apostleship. They're, they're claiming to speak with the authority of Christ. They're claiming to have extra-biblical revelation. And uh, Paul warns us himself in the letter of 2 Corinthians about the false apostles who can appear as an angel of light, just as Satan himself can appear as an angel of light. So this will be um, not so much... Thank you very much, Rhonda. It will be not so much um, a sermon like we're used to. There's a lot of contact, content, um, and, and it's kind of a list of things. So I decided to make a, a PowerPoint so that you can follow along. Um, Clay's going to try to keep up with me. But uh, for now, I'd just like to uh, give our time to the Lord in prayer. Before we do that, I'd like you to have a background passage. I'd like you to look that up because we're going to read that first. And that is Acts chapter 9. Uh, so if you have that ready before we go to prayer, we'll read that. And then we will go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you moved the Apostle Paul to write this letter, and that you inspired through the Holy Spirit every word that he wrote, that you endowed him and uh, endowed him with authority as an apostle, as an emissary, an ambassador, one that you sent. And Lord, you also endued him with the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that just in the study of, as we take a flyover of this book and look at the elements of apostleship that we find in the Apostle Paul, Lord, that we would be all the more um, moved to take your word seriously and to recognize the writings of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles as the very word of God so that we can obey them. Lord, your word is clear that if, if we do not accept this authority, neither we, are we accepted as brothers. So please lead us, guide us. I pray that you give us attention as we study. And Lord, I pray that even though this is more of a teaching message, that the gospel would come through clearly, that it would also be preaching that is powerful, that is your ordained way of bringing dead sinners to life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you'll look with me first in Acts chapter 9, we're going to read about the Apostle Paul's calling as an apostle, which also coincides with his conversion. So Acts chapter 9, we'll read the first uh, 22 verses. But Paul, pardon me, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of, at Damascus, so that he may be found, so that if he may, he found any at Damascus uh, belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them down to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. 
The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Lord, or here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and there... At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go for, he is cho- go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and baptized and was, and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is, this, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for all those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now that is a legitimate call to apostleship. It is a remarkable instance of what it is like when someone is brought to Christ. The old things pass away and the new things come. He is a new creature from breathing out threats against the church the apostle is now publicly defending the name of Jesus Christ as the Son of God at his own peril. And he is going to be chased around by his countrymen for the rest of his ministry because he is making these claims. So you'll see, you, you see there that that is a very direct call, a direct interaction with Jesus Christ. Now I said we were going to, to go right to second, uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, but I want to take one little detour before we get there to 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. And I want to read about the false apostles, because this is the dichotomy that we need to keep in mind. And it is perhaps one reason why in the letter to the Corinthians who were so enamored by personalities, Paul took great pains to distinguish himself as a true apostle. And though this is not the main theme of the text, he also lays out um, and uses himself as an example of qualifications of a true apostle. So um, just listen about the, uh, the false apostles here. Chapter 11, verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if uh, you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. 
And later on in this passage, it talks about Satan disguising, or disguising himself as an angel of light. If we look at verse 14, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So there is a lot at play. This is a very urgent letter uh, that the Apostle Paul is writing. And primarily, his concern seems to be that people who have a lot of spiritual knowledge tend to be puffed up. And people tend to look at people who have spiritual knowledge, or at least profess to do, and lift them up on a pedestal. And they begin to put the man above the message. They put the charisma, the, uh, the way that the person delivers the message, and they have favorites. They want to follow one apostle over another. In Paul's case, um, some would say, he said in the very first chapter, some say I am of Apollos, and some say I am of Paul. Well, Apollos was not even technically an apostle in the same way that Paul was. However, um, people had this tendency to elevate him and to give him that extra honor. Now, there are a number of false apostles, and I'm going to come right out and say that they are false apostles. They're making the rounds in the Christian community. They have all kinds of influence. In fact, several of the leading Republican candidates have um, significant ties to the movement of which these uh, false apostles are part. And this movement is called the New Apostolic Reformation. If you read carefully through the book of 1 Corinthians and any of Paul's letters, even if you read the writings of Jesus about the false teachers to come, you will understand that the office of apostle is not something that is going to be resurrected at some time, at some later date. There is no biblical prophecy of end-time apostles who have the same authority as the original apostles. You can't find that in scriptures. The only apostles, the, the, the only reference to apostles coming and teaching in the future are those false apostles and false teachers. But I want to tell you just a little bit before we get into 1 Corinthians about the new apostolic reformation. It was started by a man named uh, C. Peter Wagner. And I should not, it, technically it was not started by him he, because this movement existed um, quite long ago, going back into the, the uh, early 1900s, maybe 1930-1940. The movement then was called the Latter Rain Movement. And the idea was that uh, the apostolic ministry of the New Testament was the early reign, but there was a latter reign to come, and there was a restored movement of apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists. There was going to be this five-fold ministry. So the latter reign movement taught that. One of the main proponents of that was William Marion Branham, and one of the main centers of that was actually North Battleford, Saskatchewan. Now that latter reign movement was kind of discredited. Um, William Marion Branham, Branham was publicly um, denounced by the Assemblies of God, the denomination of which he was a member, and they basically said he's a false prophet. That was a Pentecostal denomination, and they disowned him. But that movement continued. It's had different names. One of them is the Manifest Sons of God, taken from Romans chapter 8, where there is a, there is a uh, expression of the hope of the revealing of the sons of God. Well, in their understanding, these sons of God are latter-day apostles. So there's, uh, there's this great company of apostles. Some people call them Joel's army, but there are these spiritually gifted uh, apostles and prophets that come and uh, they are, they're there to usher in the kingdom of Christ on earth. Uh, you, might, uh, you might hear another name, and they're all basically referring to the same thing, and that is the third wave 
of the Spirit. Now, the first, I, I can't tell you exactly what the first and second waves, but the third wave is this new wave that is ushered in by these new apostles. Well, C. Peter Wagner, who was a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, he, uh, he was a pioneer of the church growth movement. Many of the church growth strategies that are promoted in, in evangelical churches today, um, they actually go back to C. Peter Wagner. But he became convinced, and along with some others, of this uh, new movement of God um, and of this restored apostleship. And according to Wagner, the second apostolic age began, began in the year 2001, when the lost offices of prophet and apostle were restored. So when you hear people um, talking about the apostles or talking about new re revelation that's given to guys like Rick Joyner and, and Bill Johnson and Mike Bickle, and Lou Engel. When you hear those names, that is that movement. And there is literally a belief that the lost offices of prophet and apostle have been restored to the church. Now I want to give you some idea of what, you can, what, what is being taught by the New Apostolic Reformation. Just some key bullet points um, that would identify this teaching. You need to be aware of this because it is everywhere and this movement is probably the biggest pseudo-evangelical movement in the world. There are probably more adherents, especially if you get into Latin American countries, there are more adherents to this brand of, and I, I hesitate to call it Christianity because I, I don't believe it, it represents biblical Christianity, but it is huge, and it is all over the place right here in Weyburn as well. So here are some distinctives. First is apostolic governance. And that is the Apostle Paul's assertion that Jesus appoints apostles within his church continues to this day. So Jesus is still appointing apostles. Now the second one is that the office of prophet has been restored. There is within the church a role and function for present-day prophets. And of course, a prophet is someone who speaks a word directly from God to the church. The third element is dominionism. When Jesus came, he brought the kingdom of God and he expected his kingdom-minded people to take whatever action is needed to push back the long-standing kingdom of Satan and bring the peace and prosperity of his kingdom here on earth. So there is this advancing kingdom of God that, that takes over all elements of society and then establishes uh, a reign of Christ on earth. And Christ does not, does not have to be present in order for this to happen. So that's called dominionism. Another element is theocracy. Now if you know your root words, your Greek roots, theo means God and krasi, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a, well, you have it at the end of democracy, so it's a God government or God rule. Um, theocracy, not to be confused with theocratic government, but rather the goal to have a kingdom-minded people in all areas of society. There are seven areas identified specifically. So when you hear people talking about seven mountains and, and conquering those seven mountains, that is New Apostolic Reformation theology. So these areas, they, they want to, they want, basically they want Christian people to take over all of these areas. Religion, family, education, government, media, arts, and entertainment, and business. So they're building this kingdom um, through the new apostles and through the new prophets. Another thing is really, this is probably more concerning than, than anything else that I've read, and that is extra-biblical revelation. It says, there is available to all believers the ability to hear from God. Now, this has become mainstream. When you listen to Christian celebrities or anything that is put on the media, this idea of hearing God directly, that is being seen as an everyday thing. And I've, I've known people who have, when they examine themselves, they're, they're beating themselves up. They're saying, what's wrong with me? 
I don't hear from God. And of course, we know how one hears from God. He has given us His Word and He has given us His Spirit to quicken us so that we can receive and understand that Word. Uh, but this is something different from that. It is a subjective revelation, a vision or a dream that, that comes to them. So there, this is available to everyone. That is the assertion. One major rule governing any new revelation from God is that it cannot contradict what has already been written in the Bible. Now, we would say amen to that. We don't want anybody saying something that would contradict the Bible. But here's the catch. It may supplement it, however. The Book of Mormon is a supplement to the Bible. The scripture studies of the Jehovah's Witnesses, are, they are supplements to the Bible. And the assumption in the false cults is that without this supplemental knowledge, you can't really understand what the Bible says. So there is uh, extra biblical revelation, and it is designed to supplement the Bible. Uh, also, I would say that they're probably, they're, they're not very careful at all because many of their teachings do contradict the clear teaching of Scripture. We'll see some of that later on. Uh, they believe in supernatural signs and wonders. Signs and wonders such as healing, demonic deliverance, and confirmed prophecies accompany the move of God. So, the uh, signs and wonders are actually seen as part of the proclamation of the gospel. Um, it, these, it is expected that these signs and wonders accompany the gospel. If you, if you are familiar with uh, Bill Johnson and the Bethel Church at Reading, one of their main, um, their main emphases is that they will <coughs> teach people anybody, any Christian, um, to manifest signs and wonders. That is, they, they, are, they intentionally do this. And I'm not going to vouch for the genuineness of these signs. I think they're, they're either um, psychosomatic or from other, some other source other than the Spirit of God. Uh, I would be called a blasphemer of the Holy Spirit just for saying that. But you, you don't need to observe it much to see that these things are uh, in blatant contradiction of, for example, 1 Corinthians 14, which we'll get to uh, when we get to it in this study. Um, all right, supernatural signs and wonders. And this one is really interesting. Relational structures. Now, we have a church structure. We have elders, and we have, as servants and, and helpers of the church, we have deacons, which is sort of a, a sub-office. It's really everybody's a deacon, but some have been appointed to uh, specific tasks. But really, God has in, entrusted the governance of His church to elders, more than one in each church. And th these men together... Uh, must be qualified according to Scripture and must function as teachers, as, uh, as examples, as disciplinarians at times. But there is a clear structure. Listen to the structure that the New Apostolic Reformation has. Church governance has no formal structure, but rather is by relational and voluntary alignment to apostles. I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, I am of Peter Wagner, I am of Lou, Lou Engel, Rick Joyner, Mike Bickle, Bill Johnson, Todd Bentley. There is, uh, so basically, there's no church structure. You just arbitrarily um, decide which apostle you're following, and that's your connection to the body of Christ. All right, now, I wanted to read you that. It's, it's not really the message. I'm going to watch my time here. If I get past 5.30, I'll just stop and we'll continue next week. But I want to get now to 1 Corinthians. And we read it. So hopefully, if you were here, 
that is still somewhat fresh in your mind. Maybe you've reverted, reviewed it throughout the week. But we're going to look at this portrait of an apostle or this character sketch in particular of the apostle Paul. So in the very first verse, we have him introduce, introduced. He introduces himself here. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and to our brother Sosthenes. Now we'll just uh, deal with Sosthenes very quickly. Sosthenes was no doubt someone who was well known to the First Corinthians church, but that is all we know about him. Sosthenes would have been someone who was helpful to him in uh, delivering the letter, may have helped him to write the letter, although he wrote the last greeting, at least with his own hands. Sosthenes may have also been someone that uh, um, really had theological discussions and, um, and sort of acted as a sounding board for Paul as he was writing the letter. But he was not an apostle. Paul is the apostle here. Sosthenes is a helper of some kind. So we have Paul here, and our first point is, is that he is called to be an apostle, called by God, or by the will of God, to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is uh, very, very important. There is a direct call from God to Paul to be an apostle, and we read that call. He was to be sent to the Gentiles. An apostle is an emissary or an ambassador who represents a kingdom and represents authority. And he goes and he takes the message of that king and, and that authority and of that government to the people that, uh, that uh, are to hear a fair and accurate representation of the king. So Paul, he says he is called by the will of God. No apostle is ever called by his own will. No one can decide one day I'm going to be an apostle. It is a very specific calling. All 12 of the apostles that uh, walked with Jesus were called directly by him. And of course, Judas was not an apostle, but an apostate. And later, Matthias was chosen uh, in his place. But each of them had a specific moment where Jesus called them. So did the Apostle Paul. So he's called by the will of God to be an apostle. And that word apostle, it, it is a messenger. It is an emissary, an envoy, an ambassador. Um, a few other words, but I think you, you get the idea of, of what that is. The apostle himself, you need to understand, is, is not important. And Paul really addresses this throughout this letter. The apostle is not important. The and okay, of course, the apostle, the office of apostle, is important, but the man is not to be magnified. Paul does not seek to be magnified as a man. He wants to magnify the message that he brings. It's all about the message. It's all about the gospel. And it was like this for all of the apostles. They were servants. They were bond servants, messengers. That was their job. Second, uh, we got a, someone wants to advance the overhead there. Second, the apostle Paul was sent to preach the gospel. And we see that in verse 17, for Christ did not send me, in chapter 1, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So Christ literally sent Paul to preach the gospel. Now, there was a, obviously a direct commissioning of Paul to do this, now, Paul had more than one interaction with Jesus. He was taught by revelation. I believe Jesus appeared to him more than one time, more than on his initial experience. He spent years in the desert, and he was taught directly by God. But Paul was sent out. Jesus specifically sent him, as he had sent the other disciples, to preach the gospel. Um, and not with eloquent wisdom. He uh, supplied him with power 
in, he went out in the demonstration of, and of the Spirit and of power. If you look a little bit further in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not pre- come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see how important the message is. You see how he was willing to be seen as not a particularly bright intellect in order that the gospel itself would be magnified. I should mention about the call of the Apostle Paul, it is not, he was not only sent by Jesus Christ. Whenever there is an action of any of the members of the Godhead, the other members are also acting. So the Apostle Paul was sent by Jesus directly. He was also sent by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, uh, the, the Holy Spirit set aside Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, to be missionaries. He sent them, the, so the Holy Spirit specifically sent them out. And in Galatians chapter 1, we read that Jesus Christ and God the Father that Paul is sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father. So it is a triune sending. Um, God is, this is completely an act of God, um, this sending of the Apostle. Oh, the other thing, I suppose the most simple meaning of Apostle is simply sent one. Someone who is sent. Let's look at another qualification or another aspect of this character sketch of an apostle. And that is number three, that an an apostle is a steward of the mysteries of God. That is, that is, uh, it's quite the uh, dramatic way of referring to an apostle, a steward of the mysteries of God. The steward is uh, literally someone who manages a household and distributes the, the food and, and makes sure all the jobs are getting done and makes sure the servants are on task and, and basically provides the resources of the master of the house so that everybody in the house is taken care of. That's what a steward does. Uh, he also would have sort of a treasurer function, keeping track of all of the economics of the household. So you apply that in a spiritual sense. Paul is preacher comes and preaches the mysteries of God. He takes care of them and he distributes the mysteries of God to the people who are ready and able to receive them. There are things that people are not ready to receive. Natural people cannot receive the things of the Spirit. Jesus spoke in parables so that those who have an ear to hear would understand, and those who did not have an ear to hear, whom the Holy Spirit had not worked upon and worked within, those people would not yet understand that message, and it would would miss them completely. So this is uh, what Paul is called to be. Now, the, the stewardship of the mysteries of God the word comes up later on, but we're going to go back and look at the concept in, in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now we want to be careful here. Because secret wisdom is uh, really, it's the foundation of the occult. Uh, The occult, the word means hidden. If you read it in a Spanish Bible, you see hidden, it says occult or secret. But but this can be, this is not um, a secret that has been forbidden for men to know. It is something that men and women cannot know until the Holy Spirit gives them ability to know that. And he opened these secrets to the apostles. And the apostles then were given the responsibility of bringing these things, these these hidden things of God, which we have permission to know, 
of imparting these to people so that they could understand. There are hidden things of God that are never to be known. And that is where the occult comes in, things that we are not to delve into. Uh, but these are the open secrets uh, that are in the scriptures. They are there. They just need to be expounded. All right. So let's. Uh, so there's these secret, the secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Uh, in in chapter two, verses twelve and thirteen, it says, "We now we have received not only not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God." that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And, it, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Um, you will hear people in the New Apostolic Reformation, you will hear them use the word impartation. And it's as if, if I have wisdom, I can impart that wisdom to you through some mystical transfer. This impartation we're talking about is simply teaching the church, teaching Christians, teaching people who are um, indwelt by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God and the Word of God together, they produce life and they produce wisdom and they produce illumination in the people who hear it. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 16 says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So an apostle has the mind of Christ. An, an apostle is directly taught by Christ and is able to um, speak Christ's thoughts after him. In, in a sense, everyone who proclaims the message of Christ does that. Paul exhorts the church to have this mind in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. He says to the Philippians church, let this mind be in you. So we all should strive to have the mind of Christ, but in a special sense, the apostles were entrusted with the wisdom of Christ. In uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the apostle says this about himself and Apollos, but primarily of himself. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, and here's the word, and stewards of the mysteries of God. So all of these verses leading up to here have talked about those mysteries. The steward is one who keeps and treasures and dispenses those as they are necessary for the building up of the church. And those, those, those mysteries are recorded in letters. Ephesians, Ephesians, read the book of Ephesians. It is all about the mystery of the gospel, all about the mystery of the church and how Jews and Gentiles can be brought together in one man. So this is a function of the apostles. There are no new mysteries to be revealed to modern day apostles. The mysteries that we need to know are revealed in the pages of Scripture. And in, in the early church, they were revealed as these apostles taught directly, and they taught the church. They still teach us directly through their letters, and the Holy Spirit enables us to understand them. It says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. So the apostles could not you know, um, take some hallucinogenic substance and have a really wacky dream and then afterwards come to the church and say, I had a vision and this is from the Lord. The stewards were held accountable. The stewards had to be trustworthy. And their guide for trustworthiness was a scripture that was already written and what they had been taught directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to give you one example from 1 Corinthians. He does, there are actually several mysteries, I think, that are expounded in this book. But the most obvious one is in chapter 15, about the state of our resurrected bodies. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now that is a mystery. Uh, It is something that is there in veiled form in various passages in the Old Testament. There is allusion to resurrection. There is allusion in the book of Job to to Job seeing his Redeemer face to face, even though his bones are rotted away, that he will stand and, and see him and meet him face to face, I and not another. So there is this understanding. But here's the apostle with the help of, of the teaching of Christ and the Holy Spirit bringing this into clear terms so that we understand what this resurrection is all about and that not everyone will die, but we all have to change in order to enter into heaven. All right. Now, this one is really important. um, And I think the Apostle Paul is a wonderful expression of it. An apostle is a humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both are important, humble and a servant. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 to 7 says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Now, Apollos was a latecomer. He was someone who initially was very moved by the message of Jesus that he had heard probably secondhand from someone. And he went out and he started preaching. But when he started preaching, he did not have full knowledge of the gospel. He was preaching a kind of repentance without any gospel. And Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and taught him so that he knew more fully. And then he went out and continued preaching. So his his history is much different than the, Apo- uh, the Apostle Paul's, but Apollos did have a great gift of oratory. He did have, he, when he spoke, these wise and eloquent words and powerful words came out of his mouth. Now, I, I think it's significant here that Paul identifies himself as the planter and identifies Apollos as a waterer. I believe an apostle is a planter. An apostle is one who is entrusted with the seed, with the gospel, and especially in a special sense. The the apostle Paul and the other apostles who knew Jesus and were taught by him, they were the first to plant that seed, and they had a special responsibility for the gospel, to make sure that pure seed was sown in the early church and that that seed was recorded in the pages of Scripture so that that seed would not be corrupted as it was, um, as the history of the church would go on. And then he has Apollos as a waterer, someone who comes along later after the seed is first sown. But you can apply that in general as well. There are people who sow the seed of the gospel, and then there are people who come along and and nourish that seed. And sometimes we know nothing about how this happens. It just happens. The Lord brings people along and they function in these capacities without necessarily understanding what they're doing. Uh, Continuing just a little further here in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants of Christ. This is how we want to be known. You should regard us, even though we are apostles, you should regard us as servants. That seems very fitting because Jesus himself became a servant. And so the emissary should have the mind of Christ. The emissary who goes out, the apostle who goes out should be a foot washer. The person who goes out would be, should be one who is willing to lay down his life for his friends and for the sake of the gospel. So there's, there, this is a, another instance of them 
Paul referring to him and his fellow apostles, and he's, I think he's grouping Apollos in here as well as servants of Christ. Now listen to what the life of a servant of Christ is like. 1 Corinthians 4, 9-13, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. There's, there's sarcasm here. The Corinthian church is puffed up. They, they are spiritual sermon tasters. They're running around to this apostle and that and to the super apostles. And they are um, they're professing to have this great knowledge. And when a true apostle comes, sometimes they don't even recognize So this is how they are actually treated. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When we we are reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now that's, Paul's not saying this is how we want to be treated. He's saying this is how we are treated. And you know why they're treated this way? Because Jesus was treated this way. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So I don't hear many of the new apostles um, suffering for the sake of their so-called apostleship. I see them prospering. I see them being honored. I see people fawning over them. Now, we need to respect our leaders, and this, this is, in, in one sense, is a rebuke because they do not respect the fact that he is an apostle. But he is also saying, look, I'm enduring all of this, all of this, for the sake of the gospel. I am a bond slave. That's what the word servant is. I am a bond slave of Christ. And I am doing this because I love my master. I am bound to him, and I am going to serve him. A little bit more in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. So in order to properly serve the gospel, in order to properly serve Christ, he makes himself a servant to all, thus applying both tables of the law, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So this applies in servanthood as well, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. You see, he's willing to lay aside his, his, uh, his sensibilities, his preferences, his his likes and dislikes in order to go to people in a situation where he doesn't fit in very well. And he is willing to sacrifice many things so that he can bring the message of the gospel to them. Verse 22, For I, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. See, the man is not important. The persona is not important. The popularity is not important. The dignity of your Jewish heritage is not important. The gospel is important. And this is the mark of a biblical apostle, one who has been taught directly by Jesus. And that message and that life in Jesus' name becomes the dominating force in his life. Running out of time. I'm going to get halfway through today, I think. All right. So the fifth point here is that an apostle... There's two phrases used here. An apostle is one of God's fellow workers. And Paul uses the phrase, especially of himself, a master builder. It's more of a a metaphor, but it really fits. 
So 1 Corinthians 3, verses 9 through 11. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Speaking of the church in Corinth and of the saints there. You are God's field, God's building. And this follows immediately after the passage where Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. So he's carrying on that metaphor of the field, but he's introducing a new metaphor of a building. Now, Paul is first in the field. The apostle is first in the field. The apostles are the first to spread the gospel and get this crop going. Similarly, the apostle is first in building the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ. The world needs to know who Jesus is. The apostles are those who are entrusted with that responsibility of laying down that solid foundation that will endure until Jesus returns and beyond. That solid foundation, which is Jesus Christ. That is the role of an apostle. And no new apostle is going to add anything to that. Uh, Verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Here's a key verse. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So you want to know about Jesus. You want to know everything you need to know and everything you can know about Jesus. Everything that is true. That foundation is laid. Don't go looking for someone who has new revelation from Jesus. No foundation can be laid other than the one that is already laid. In the days of Paul, that foundation was being laid. Uh, A parallel passage in Ephesians says this, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the apostles were not the foundation. They were the ones who built the foundation and the very cornerstone of that upon which everything else stands is Jesus Christ in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Now, The building is the church. Of course, Christ is the real builder of the church, but he uses instruments. He uses the apostles and their teaching. In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 and 2, we we read about this, uh, this workmanship of the apostles. Am I not free, he says, am I not an apostle? Have Have not I seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So an apostle is one who works at building people. And these people, through the gospel, are built into a a building, a temple that is fit as as a place for the Lord to dwell. That's us. From these pages, 2,000 years later, the Apostle Paul, is, his words are continuing to build the church. We'll just look at one more. We'll finish. I actually have 12 points, which is fitting for an apostle, a message on, on the apostles. But the, the sixth point here is that Paul identifies himself as a father in the faith. Father in the sense that this is the person through whom the faith of the people at Corinth, uh, the person who first presented Jesus to them. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 21. It says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. There's a difference between a guide and a father. Apollos 
There's a guide. People who come along after the foundation is laid, they have a function, but there is a primacy in what those first apostles did. You have countless guides in Christ. You do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the, the uh, instrument of, of bringing this life into the world is the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. You want to know how to imitate me? I'm sending you Timothy. Timothy imitates me. I am his father in the faith. I taught him. I laid that foundation. I showed him Jesus. And I built him up as a master builder. And others have come in and have contributed to that. But be imitators of me. Um, I want to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the walk of these arrogant people, but not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Can you hear the authority? Can you hear the authority of a spiritual father in those words? I'm going to come and I want you to prepare for my coming, but it's your choice. Do I have to take you out into the woodshed or are we just going to have a, a gentle talk about this? But he's saying, I have, the, I have the authority to carry out this discipline. Now, in a church, there is a structure of authority, and elders together have authority, and also everyone in the church together has a kind of authority when an elder or when anyone in the church um, sins. That's when the, that is presented to the church, and then there is this, uh, this agreement of the majority. So, but there, this... Uh, concept of spiritual authority it's it's uh, in the home through the father it's in the church through uh through elders um and i believe there's a special fatherly authority in the ministry of the apostles well we don't have time to uh go through the other six points but i'm going to jump now to the very last point. Number 12. And this is, uh, I think if you really want to cut to the heart of the character of the Apostle Paul and the very, the very source of his apostolic authority, it is expressed here in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 11. An apostle is one who depends upon the grace of God. Paul, many times in this letter, says, I don't have any reason to boast except in the gospel. I don't have any reason to boast except in Jesus Christ. I will boast, but I will boast only in Jesus Christ. And I'd like you to think of the people that are billing themselves as apostles. Do they possess that so-called gift with the humility that we see here? It says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. I don't deserve to be an apostle, but he has made me an apostle. He has given me something I don't deserve. Really, I had my work cut out for me convincing those Christians in Jerusalem that I wasn't going to kill them. 
because I was a bad, I was a bad egg. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. Look at the results. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was for they, was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. In other words, other apostles, apostles have preached I'm coming as someone who doesn't even deserve to, an, to be an apostle, but I've been given this grace by God. But our role as apostle is to lay down the standard of preaching for all time. To lay down the faith once delivered to the saints so that as we pick up this book and study it, we can understand what the apostles taught. We can preach the way the apostles preached because we're not adding things to this. We're not claiming anything new. The gospel is actually expressed in this chapter from where the apostle, um, where, where we are concluding here. And of course the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That phrase is so important. When the Apostle Paul preached, he had two sources of authority. The scriptures themselves and Jesus Christ, who is the very embodiment of the Word of God, the very Logos of God. Those were Paul's sources. Um, so Christ died for... Oh, by the way, he says... I pass on to you what Christ taught me. So Christ taught him this. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. That is the central um, thought and the powerful concept that, the, that God planted down into Paul's heart when he was still Saul, when he was still a murderer. Christ died for your sins. He had no defense. His sins were laid out before him. He understood that he was persecuting the Son of God. And God mercifully saved him. And he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And days later he was out proclaiming this good news. So I hope that, I, I, I guess we'll come back, we've got more to finish, but I hope that gives you a better sense of the author, or the, at least the human author of the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, I want to take time because sometimes I think we just jump in and we're kind of postmodern about how we read the Bible. And in postmodernism, it really doesn't matter where the author came from or what his background was, or what his influences were, the reader determines the meaning. But Scripture is not written that way. We, we understand that there is a history and that there is a, a background to these men. And for us to really understand what they're saying, it's worth it to take some time and get to know them. It's worth it to, get, to take some time to get to know Moses or Jesus, or anyone in Scripture. And we become attached to these people, and they teach us through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your help as we have rushed, it seemingly rushed through some of these uh, texts. But Lord, I thank you that you, you chose people to do your work. You made them servants. Thank you for the humility of Paul. Lord, you even gave him a thorn in the flesh so he would not become puffed up by his revelations, so that he wouldn't go around bragging. And he was grateful for that thorn in the flesh. I think of self-appointed apostles that apostles that go around bragging about their visions, bragging about their trips to heaven. 
I thank you, Lord, that you've given us this, this template that we can compare people who are um, exalting themselves to this humble servant chosen by God, sent by Christ. I thank you that his words endure because they are your words. And I pray for all wisdom and all humility in applying them to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're dismissed.